If you're with us for the first time, we're so thankful that you decided to worship with us today. We, we hope and pray that our church would be a family and a people where week after week uh, you would just find renewal and restoration, uh, that you would be uh, energized in all that we do. Um, before we jump into our new series, you know, there's two things I want to, uh, two big things I want to bring up. You know, next Sunday, after, our 11, after this service, after our 11 o'clock service, we're going to have a college luncheon. Um, we're going to talk, all, this is all college students who are invo- invited, um, we're going to talk about how we c- want to care for you, how we want to disciple you, and how uh, we want to reach the campus together. We believe if we, if we can reach the campus, we can reach the world. So that's, that's what we want to do. That's next Sunday after the 11 a.m. service. And then next Sunday night, that same day, uh, we're going to have uh, what we call a night of prayer and worship. And these nights of prayer and worship are some of the most inf- uh, foundational and influential things that we do. Like we do a lot, like our gatherings are really important. But the night of prayer and worship is one of the more important gatherings that we have, that we do throughout the year. Because if you want to see the engine of our church and what makes our church run and, and, and thrive and what, whatever, however God works, it's through our night of prayer and worship because we are a dependent people that depend on the power of God to move and to save. Without, without a doubt, we are a dependent people. That's for next week, but for today, <clears throat> we're beginning a new four-week series in the book of Jonah. And y'all, this is one of my own personal favorite books um, of the Bible. One, because it's just a fun story about a guy that gets swallowed by a large fish, hangs out in his belly for three days, uh, and then gets spit out, and then he obeys God uh, because I guess he was hanging out in the belly of a fish. It's a fascinating story. My kids love it. Uh, I love it. We started reading it this past week as a family. I mean, a man talking inside the belly of a fish. I mean, how much more fun is that, Right. Uh, but I also love this book because secondly, I preached through this book seven years ago and through the process of preaching this book, God confirmed and made it very clear that we were to plant New City Church. We didn't know uh, where or when or how we would plant a church, but in preaching through this book, I so deeply identified with Jonah and believing that God was calling to this, but it was the very last thing I wanted to do. I love studying the Bible, but honestly, y'all, I just don't like talking that much. I mean, honestly, um, I remember being terrified as a kid at the thought of being a pastor. Uh, like just being in front of people every single week seemed like a total nightmare. Like I don't naturally like being in front of people. I don't prefer to be up here on stage. Like my comfortable preference would be to live uh, in the middle of nowhere and read books and be a farmer, okay? That's my preference. But then over the years, God's continued to work in my heart, but even still, the last thing I wanted to do 10 years ago was to plant a church. Like, that seemed like a totally terrible idea. And then seven years ago, my father-in-law asked me to preach four sermons for his church, uh, two weekends in a row, Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, and I just needed, I looked for a book in the Bible with four chapters, and I found Jonah. Seven years later, here we are. You know, the very, you know, whenever I tell the story of our church, you know, I often t- tell the story of being in South Asia and a church being birthed on a short-term trip, and God really worked on that trip, really made our, our vision really clear and evident of how we would be a church that hopes to send people to the ends of the earth. Like, that's the vision of our church, to see people come to Christ, uh, raised up, discipled, and sent back out on mission across the street and around the world. Like, we exist to see Jesus change lives and to reach the world. But I don't think I've ever told uh, as a major, uh, I don't think I've ever told as a major piece the story of our church, which three months before that trip I preached the book of Jonah and it totally wrecked me you know I've been waiting four years to preach this book waiting and praying for the right time in the life of our church and now is the time like this this book is not just about Jonah being swallowed by a whale or a large fish or whatever it was says it's a large fish 
No, this book is about God's relentless pursuit of his people and the grand mission of God. You know, there, there are people all around us that are in desperate need of Jesus. On campus, in our schools, neighborhoods, our coworkers, and God's plan and purpose is to use you and me to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And so before we go any further, um, I want to stop and pray and just ask God for help. Let's pray. God, we recognize that uh, we need your work. Uh, we, we need you to work in power today. God, would you soften our hearts to receive the word of God? God, we need your help, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and get into the text. Look at uh, verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, all of chapter 1, 17 verses. This is what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. For evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's where we're going to stop today. We're going to have four turns in, our, in this first chapter. And as we go back th through this, we're going to see number one, God's mission. Number two, Jonah's rebellion. Number three, God's storm. And number four, Jonah's sacrifice. And we're going we're gonna to work through this, this slowly. And we're going to spend most of our time in the first six verses just to really set everything up. But I want us to think of this, these turns, these four turns, kind of like four different puzzle pieces or four different ideas. Uh, but then we're going to bring them all together. and We're going to see how they all connect. So hang with me, okay? But before we get there, I do want to address the elephant in the room about the story of Jonah. Like we need to ask, is this a true story that really happened? Or is it more of an allegory to teach a lesson? Because what I know about myself is that I'm a pretty skeptical person and the thought of a man being swallowed by a fish and three days later being spit out and then living 
Seems like a fun and cute story, kind of like maybe Little Red Riding Hood uh, with Grandma getting eaten by a wolf. Like, it's cute and fun. But if I were a skeptic, I think, yeah, the book of Jonah is a made-up story. And yes, it's just an allegory to teach people a life lesson, kind of like Little Red Riding Hood teaches kids to not talk to strangers. And I get it. For the skeptical person, it makes sense that thinking this really happened, it is just silly. And then to make matters worse, some of the arguments for this being a real story tries to allude to scientific reasoning, thing, thinking is scientifically possible a man could survive this occurrence. Maybe even pointing to the guy that got swallowed by a whale last year and lived to tell it, which is a crazy story. My, my kids told, it about, told me about it this past week. The scuba diver in this story last year was in the mouth of a whale for 40 seconds and then got spit out, kind of making him seem like the modern day Jonah. But we have to see the difference here. He had an oxygen tank, and he was only in the mouth for 40 seconds. Jonah was without an oxygen tank, was in the belly for three days and three nights, uh, and it's kind of a long time to be uh, without any oxygen to survive in the intestines of the fish. Again, if I'm a skeptic, I'm laughing in your face because there is no way you're convincing me this, is, this could really happen, and I don't know anybody that would step up and be the test case for the science project. I mean, scientific evidence seems more of a wishful theory than in my opinion, uh, that in my opinion, it's just not very convincing. But I will say this, I do believe this is a true story that really happened in real life and it is not a fictitious fable or any sort of allegory. And it's certainly not based on scientific evidence, but it's rather based on Jesus in an empty tomb. Like the only logical and convincing argument, in my opinion, that this was a real historical event that really, truly happened, is that this was a total miracle from God. And when we look at all the crazy events that happened in the Bible, like God parting the Red Sea and bread coming down from heaven and the walls of Jericho coming, falling down uh, by people screaming and shouting, and then today the story of Jonah, the only logical reasoning for this is that they are total works of God and nothing else. And if we believe that Jesus walked on water and turned water into wine and uh, fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, that same man died on the cross and then rose from the dead, you know, the story of Jonah, it is not too far-fetched. Either God is God and is powerful and can do these things, or he's not. And based on the evidence that we have that Jesus rose from the dead, we can be pretty confident we're not crazy to believe in miracles like the story of Jonah. And then to top it all off, the most convincing reason to believe that this was a real and true historical event was because Jesus in Matthew 12 saw this as, re as real and true. And so I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. And I know that's more of a sidestep, but I wanted to address it because I know it's an obstacle we need to jump over before we can really start running in this text. So let's look at our main idea for today, starting in Jonah, from, really from all of chapter 1, but we're going to see this over the entire series. And it's that God relentlessly pursues his people. God relentlessly pursues his people. You know, throughout the book of Jonah, we're going to see God pursuing the city and the people of Nineveh and also seeing God pursue Jonah in just a totally different way. And listen, I don't know what's going on in your life today, but I know this. If you're here today and you're singing with God's people and listening to the preaching of God's word, that is evidence that God is pursuing you. Maybe you've been in a season of rebellion, or maybe you have a family member or a friend who's been running from God. Today, I want to call us to take heart, because as we'll see today, God is in a relentless pursuit of his people. 
When God calls people to himself and when he puts a call on someone's life, as we'll see today, God goes to work and he pursues his people to restore them and to see us walk in his ways. And so we're going to start working back through this text slowly and we're going to see how this all plays out. Look look, look again starting at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. So I want to stop there because as we're getting into this, one of the first things we need to ask ourselves is who is Jonah? And we know that Jesus uh, called Jonah a prophet in Matthew 12. And if you're not familiar with a prophet, they were essentially God's mouthpiece. Uh, they were often used by God to bring repentance and warning and judgment and also hope. I mean, maybe we could say in a, in a simplified way, they were seen as spiritual leaders of the day. They were set apart by God. They were considered seri- very serious about their faith. And so here is Jonah, a man that God wants to use, and he is set apart as a spiritual leader. And then God comes and speak to him, speaks to him and says in verse 2, look what it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. And God essentially says to Jonah, like go to the city of Nineveh and do what prophets do. Like go do your job. Call to them repentance to turn away from their evil ways and come back to the Lord. And again, we must see this is the heart of God. He's a pursuing God. He's got cities and groups of people on his heart. And so God goes to Jonah and he basically says to tell these people to turn to the Lord. Like go and be a missionary to these people. Which brings us to our first turn of the text. Number one, God's mission. There are two things we can see about God's mission right off the bat. And first is that God's mission is active. Like we immediately see the active mission of God when he says arise and go. He did not say sit and stay. He did not say be comfortable, stay and be comfortable. He did not say I'll send someone else. No, he said directly to Jonah, arise and go. And again, we must get this. This isn't just God's call to Jonah. And this is, no, this is a call for all Christians everywhere today. Like Jesus' last words to his disciples were to go and make disciples of all nations. And so if you are walking with Christ today, you are called uh, to arise and go. This is not an option as, this is not optional as a Christian. We have to go across the street to our neighbors. We have to be intentional to go to our coworkers and classmates and to the campus. We have to be intentional to go to people who aren't like us. We have to go to the poor and the orphan and the widow and the unwed mother and the refugee. We have to go to the sick and the hurting. We have to go to the ends of the earth to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. This is God's call on our life. We have a going and ascending faith. And listen, okay, going is not just moving to take the gospel to another city or to go on a mission trip. No, going is living a life of intention. It's actively engaging in God's mission and not sitting on the sidelines just waiting for someone else to do it. But then what we also see from these first two verses is that God's mission always involves his people. Yes, God could have used another means to get his message to Nineveh, but God wanted to use Jonah. Like, and listen, like throughout this, the entire Bible, God always uses his people to bring good news. And God's purpose is to have all peoples worshiping him, and he wants to use us, you and me, to make that happen. God wants to use you to show your friend Jesus and to proclaim to them the gospel. 
God wants to use you to show your coworker and classmates and neighbor that in Christ they can be a new creation and that their old life uh, can be taken away and God can create in them a new life. Again, we have good news to bring to the world and God wants to use you and me to get it to them. And that's what God did for the people of Nineveh. God called Jonah to go on mission to them. But we also need to ask, well, who is Nineveh? And Nineveh, it says, is a great city. Uh, Not great as in like awesome, but great as in really big. Nineveh was the capital city where there was lots of business and life happened here. Um, It was a large city, but it was filled with great evil because God said in verse 2, their evil has come up before me. It was a city that had no evidence of faith in God, and God essentially was saying in verse 2, they're rotten, they're spoiled, and it stinks. I guess we could say it. they're like they smelt like rotten milk to God, spoiled milk to God. And if you've got if you've got kids, you might know this. Uh, there's nothing worse than finding a sippy cup under the couch or a van that's been sitting there leaking out for days, and the only reason you knew it was there is because you were laying on that same exact couch, and that uh, rotten aroma just comes up before you. Well, that's how God at this moment views Nineveh. He doesn't like what he sees. But here's what I want to point out about this. Even though they're uh, evil, like they're, they're through their evil, that like God, like they're despised, they despise God. But yet God still cared enough for, for Nineveh to want to send Jonah to warn them and send them, uh, to, send, to see them turn to the Lord. Showing us first that God cares deeply for the lost. Like if he, didn't ca- if he didn't care for the lost, he would not have sent Jonah. But he showed his care by sending, wanting to send Jonah to them. But then in contrast to that, what we also see is that yes, uh, God cares deeply for the lost, but he also hates sin. But the evil in this city, it moved God to then do something to get rid of that sin. And what did God do? Well, he sent a messenger to warn them. Listen, God hates sin. All sin, your sin, my sin, your lost friend's sin. But in all of this, what we also can't miss is that God delights in rescuing those that are entangled in their sin. You know, I love my kids, I, but, but when my kids throw up all over themselves, I admit I totally freak out and call for my wife to help. Uh, like, there are a lot of things we can, we can handle alone, but throw up, it's our marriage pact. In the Hovis house, we do not clean this up alone. And you know what? Well, we also don't do with our kids We don't leave them in their (laughs) throw-up. Why? Because we love them and we want them to be cleaned up. And we'll see this more in weeks ahead, but y'all, God delights in cleaning us up and giving us second chances, even to cities and people like Nineveh that are covered in sin and that seem like rotten and spoiled milk. And here we see that God doesn't want to leave Nineveh in their filth, but rather in his kindness, he calls out a messenger to warn them and to go to them and to help them get cleaned up. But this begs the question for us. When we see someone in their sin and their filth, when we see someone whose life seems rotten and spoiled, do we see them in compassion with good news or do we reject them and walk away? And what does God do? He pursues them in compassion and he seeks to bring them good news. So I want to be clear here, okay? There is Nineveh and there is Jonah. And God is relentlessly pursuing both in different ways. 
Like Nineveh doesn't claim God. No, they're lost and God is pursuing them. And as we'll see, God is also pursuing Jonah who claims the Lord, and, but his pursuit is a little different. And what we'll see is that, yes, God cares for the lost around the world. God's mission is massively important. But the book of Jonah spends more time showing us God's pursuit of Jonah than Nineveh. And I'm going to play my cards here a little bit because if you feel like Nineveh, if you feel like your life is spoiled and that your life has a rotten aroma, like I have no clue what, is the, what it is that makes you feel that way, but take heart because the end of this story, it actually ends much better for Nineveh than Jonah the prophet. And so no matter where you are today, we can take heart that our God is a redeeming and a pursuing God that no filth and sin is too far from being redeemed by the hand of God. So again, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to bring them a message of warning. And then what does he do? Well, look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This brings us to our second turn. Our second puzzle piece, I guess we could say. Number two, Jonah's rebellion. Because what did Jonah do when God told him to go to Nineveh? Jonah went the exact opposite direction where God told him to go. He says uh, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Again, he, this is a prophet. This is a religious leader of the day, and Jonah here was blatantly disobedient. Again, Nineveh was probably a city filled with sexual immorality, murder, lying, stealing, cheating, and they were probably rude, crude, and certainly impolite. And Jonah was God's mouthpiece to bring about repentance to a lost and broken city. Yet in this instant, Jonah's heart was put on full display. And he dis disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh. He's like, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not going there. Those people are wicked and evil. I am not going there. And so what does he do? He goes the exact opposite direction of what God told him to do. He said, God said, go this way, and Jonah went that way. Just total rebellion against God. And we can look at Jonah and think, man, what has gotten into him? Until we realize we can just as easily do the exact same thing. I mean, God tells us to go to our neighbor and to reach the city and campus and schools. And how easy is it to just stay home and not engage with anybody? I mean, God tells us to serve the church be in biblical community and to give and to be in the word and to pray but how easy is it to do the exact opposite of all of that god says do this but we don't want to do it so we do the opposite you know this is part of my story like i shared earlier seven years ago god's like eric i'm calling you to be a pastor and plant a church in a city with people and to preach and proclaim the gospel and i'm like i don't want to be a pastor can i just live in a farm away from this like away from the city away from people and just be by myself just be a hermit and just be a loner all by myself like God made it clear to go one way, but my own desire was to go another way, which is exactly what Jonah did. He went in the total opposite direction of God's command. In New City, as we see the rest of this chapter and what happens as Jonah uh, disobeys, may we see this as a warning to spur us on towards obedience. But let's look a little bit closer at Jonah because there's something very specific about uh, this text that I, you know, I never would have picked this up on my own. Uh, commentators have helped me, but there's a literary technique in the original language uh, that is just really good. 
Let's look at the text again. I've, I've kind of bolded and uh, highlighted some of these things. Look at ver- verse 2 says, Arise and go. And then in verse 3, this is what it says. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 4, we see that God sent a storm. And then look down at verse 5. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So what I want to point out here that would have been noticed in the original language is that through this literary technique of repetition, the author is pointing out Jonah's downward cycle of sin and rebellion. Again, God said, go to Nineveh, but he went the opposite direction and fled to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. And while he was there, there just so happened to be a boat that was ready to take him to Tarshish. And what did Jonah do? Well, Jonah got onto the boat, thinking, I mean, just how convenient. And he went down into it, down into the boat, away from the Lord. And so on that boat to Tarshish, there were people on that boat crying out to their false gods. And Jonah, who is a prophet of God, was caught up in his sin and rebellion and had the perfect opportunity to show God's power. But he was running from God. And so he went down into isolation and down into a deep sleep of idleness. And so Jonah, a prophet was sent to be God's mouthpiece, but instead he went into isolation and idleness in his rebellion. Jonah here was in a downward cycle of rebellion, and church, don't miss this. There was a boat ready to take him away from God's call and away from God's purpose and to help him in his rebellion and to run away from obeying God, which leads me to say, New City, there will always be a boat available to lead us into sin and rebellion. Always. Listen, we cannot underestimate the power to sin. Again, God is relentlessly pursuing Jonah in his own rebellion for the purpose of an entire city to turn to the Lord. And we must see the danger and the destruction that sin can have as we're pursuing the purposes of God. And so we need to ask ourselves, is there any sin that we're giving hospitality to allow it to grow? I mean, just ask, where are we saying no to God in our life? What area of our life is not totally surrendered to God? I mean, there is no question that we can have everything together, or at least give the appearance that everything is together and hand it over to the Lord, but yet how easy is it to have just one part of our life that we still hold on to? Maybe it's our schedule, maybe it's our finances, our pleasure, comfort, whatever it is. But just ask, what area of our life does God not totally have? Because again, we have an enemy getting our ship ready and he's preparing the boat to go in the opposite direction of the Lord. Let's just sit here for a second. You know, husbands and wives, there will always be a guy or a girl that will be ready to flirt with you. There will always be a relationship that is made to seem better than your marriage. There will always be a great deal on something that might just put you into more debt. There will always be someone willing to listen to our gossip. There will always be a way to cheat on a test or taxes at work, an expense report, a timesheet, whatever it is. Again, may we listen and be warned. Whatever sin is our greatest struggle, the enemy is preparing a ship for us to jump in and sail away from God's plan and purpose. 
Y'all, the downward cycle of sin is so real. Adultery at 40 begins with pornography at 14. Greed doesn't begin with our first paycheck. No, it starts when kids struggle to share toys. Stubborn hearts at 50 begin with rebelling to God-given authority in college. Like, this is the way sin works. It builds on each other, and it works in a, it leads to a downward cycle. And those seemingly small problems in our life, if they aren't dealt with early, they can become massive giants later. And so we must get this. If we have sin in our life, we cannot give it any hospitality to grow. We just think about that boat. Sure did welcome Jonah and give him a place to go and have a nice little nap. It was rather convenient for him. And yes, we are called to be hospitable people, but never hospitable to sin. Again, may we use Jonah's downward cycle of rebellion as our warning. And listen, we don't have to be like Jonah here. I mean, at every single turn uh, into the depth of isolation and idleness for Jonah, there was an opportunity to turn back the other way. Yes, you may have been or you may be in a downward spiral, but don't let it take getting swallowed by a big fish or some sort of major crisis to turn you around. Let today be a turning point to turn back to the Lord in every single area of our life because God, he is a God of second chances. Praise the Lord. He's a God of second chances. So turn back to the Lord today. You know what's so fascinating about this passage? As Jonah's running from God, he's in this downward cycle of sin and rebellion and he wasn't turning back. And what did God do? Well, look at verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship threatened to break up. So what did God do? Well, he sent a storm into Jonah's life. Which brings us to our third turn and our third puzzle piece. Number three, God's storm. Church, this, this, this storm was a gift to Jonah. But I also want to be very clear here because if we are in Christ, if we have believed in Jesus, our sin has been paid for once and for all. As one pastor said, Pastor J.D. Greer, he said, God does not put storms in our life to pay us back. He puts storms in our life to bring us back. This storm was not to punish Jonah, but to lovingly discipline Jonah for his own good. And yes, there are certainly consequences for our actions, and it's not because God is angry with us and is, is out to punish us. No, Christ took 100% of our punishment at the cross. All the wrath we deserve for our sin and rebellion was paid in full by Christ at the cross. But yet, in God's kindness... He still allows storms, hardship, storms in our life for our benefit. And God, through the storm, was stripping Jonah. He was taking everything he could possibly stand on and just removing them out one by one until he was left crying out to God in complete dependence for help. I mean, I don't know what storms you're going on, are going on in your life. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe there's a financial crisis. Or maybe the thing that you love the most has just been taken from you. And just maybe, what if we could somehow see these storms as a blessing that have caused us to trust Christ more and his mercy and his kindness more today, maybe than we did before the storm. And I also want to say sometimes storms in our life are just simply because we live in a fallen world pain, sickness, sadness, lo losing lost lo lo loved ones. They remind us that this world is still broken and they cause us just to long for our hope in heaven. But we also can't miss 
And we must know that God can still use those same storms that are caused by evil to also draw us closer to him. Genesis 50-20, what the enemy means for evil, God can turn it for good. Y'all, I've had all types of storms in my life. We all have. This is just part of life. Some I can look back and see how God has worked in them, and some I'm, you know, I'm still waiting, still waiting to see for the Lord to show it to me. But there's no question, 2020 was an incredibly hard year for our church. We started our church, and seven weeks later, was shut down by COVID. I mean, what a great way to start, right? I mean, it was just followed by hardship after hardship, trial after trial, storm after storm, and yet through all the pain and the trial, I have no doubt in my mind that God totally changed the landscape of our church for the good for years to come. I mean, I, without a doubt, a totally different pastor with a much clearer understanding of what God has called us to and what God has not called us to. And one of the things that God made abundantly clear through that long and painful storm was that our church is a church that God will use to bring healing and restoration in the lives of people. And that we are called to be a steadfast anchor and an unwavering, uh, just like a steadfast presence and an unwavering anchor just in the lives of one another. When someone is down, we pick them up. When someone is struggling, we stand by their side and we do not give up on one another. Like God has made it painfully clear through a very challenging storm that both my calling and my burden to bear in ministry and as a pastor is just to be a stable anchor and presence in the lives of those around me. And no, I cannot be everyone's best friend. And I can't be everywhere at all times. And no, we're certainly not a perfect church. And I like we will let you down. I will let you down at some point. It is just guaranteed. But what I know for certain and I am utterly convinced of is that as long as I'm a pastor here, we will fight for you and with you as long as you're willing to fight. And where did all this clarity and calling come from? In the depths of a painful and challenging storm. And listen, I don't know where you are today, what you're going through, but one thing we can trust is the kindness of the Lord. I believe that all of our storms can be used by God for a greater purpose. They can, they can deepen our well and just strengthen our foundation in Christ and fuel us with greater hope and purpose. I mean, every time we go through a storm, we get strengthened for the next one. I mean, think of it like this. Because of the literal storms that we've seen through the state of Florida over the years, all of the building codes have changed. I mean, this, specifically in 1992, her, after Hurricane Andrew, the building codes drastically changed. And now because of those, strong, those storms, houses now have stronger foundations, stronger st- uh, structures, and better building codes. And because of that, when other storms come, the houses, buildings, and structures are stronger than they were before for the future storms that do come. And so the storms that you're going through now, the storms we have been through, they're creating a stronger foundation for future storms. They help to instill in us great faith and a greater love for the Lord. And y'all, there's so much to say here. But my prayer is that we would see an expression of God's kindness in the midst of our storms. And in this specific context in Jonah, God is very much disciplining Jonah in the storm. Again, not to punish him out of anger, but to draw him back to himself. And why? Because he loves Jonah. And he is relentlessly pursuing Jonah. Let's look at verses 7 to 10, just to get to our last turn. Look what it says. And they, the mariners, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Well, there's a bunch here, but there's one thing I want to point out uh, specifically about Jonah and keep moving. You know, the, and keep moving. Um, the mariners, they were all kind of gathered together in the midst of a storm. They were in distress, and they were throwing out all their, uh, their cargo out of the boat because of the storm. And they, were, they had already cried out to all their false gods and uh, trying to get them to help, but nothing was working. And so they had to go down to Jonah in the bottom of the ship and basically say, what are you doing? Like, who are you? Like what, did you bring in, like, what did you bring upon us? And then Jonah says to them in verse 9, while he's still running away from the Lord, might I add, he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then down in verse 10, it says, the men were exceedingly afraid. And look what it says at the end of verse 10. The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You know, these mariners, they didn't actually know Yahweh, the, the God that uh, Jonah claimed to worship. They were worshiping false gods. But in this moment, they smelled out Jonah's hypocrisy. Jonah said he feared God with his mouth, but Jonah's actions in life, they told a completely different story. And I think if we evaluated our own life, there are probably areas in which we say, kind of like Jonah, we trust God with our mouth, but our actions say something completely different. Maybe we could say we live on mission. And we say we want those we love to come to Christ, and we, but we never actually share Christ with anyone. Maybe we say Christ is Lord of our life, but our maybe, just maybe, our wallets and our bank account might say differently that our bank account is the Lord of our life. We could go on and on about this. Again, the book of Jonah on the outset looks like a great missionary text, but the more we dig into it, the more we learn, there is so much more that we can see like, and see that the undercurrent to God's mission, it is soft and obedient hearts to the Lord in every area of our life. When God calls people into mission, he doesn't start with his mission. No, he starts with changing our hearts and softening our hearts and getting our hearts to yield to the ways of God in all areas, in every nook and cranny of our life and in our heart. Again, God delights in using his people for his mission, but one of the, these reasons for this is that so he can shape us and so that he can mold us in the process. Well, listen, sharing Christ with your neighbor is just as much about our own obedience and personal holiness as it is their need to respond in faith. You see, God doesn't need us for his mission. But the beauty of it is that he wants to use us in his mission and because he's growing us in the process. And you know, the painful truth <laughs> that is just so good for us is that when we seek to be obedient to God's call on our life and we obey his commands, the idols in our life, they just begin to seep up to the surface. Church, this is the book of Jonah. God doesn't just want us to live on mission. He wants us to grow us in dependence and holiness as we live on mission. Living on mission with God, it is a means to our holiness. And we're going to talk about more this with, with next week from Jonah chapter 2 about a renewed life and how God changes us and uses us. But I want to close this morning 
by looking at these few verses and complete our last term because these guys on the boat, they confront Jonah and then look what they say. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And so not only did uh, God have Nineveh on his heart, but he also had the guys on this boat, the mariners on his heart. And in Jonah's disobedience, God used his disobedience to draw these idol-worshiping mariners to the Lord. And Jonah at this point knew that the storm that he was fighting and that it was happening because of him, it was bringing everyone else down with him. Like nothing was working. And so Jonah told them, just hurl me out into the sea. And essentially saying, sacrifice me. I'm the problem. <laughs> I'm Taylor Swift, right? It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> just went for it. Leading us to number four, Jonah's sacrifice. You know, Jonah knew the storm was there because of his disobedience. And his rebellion and disobedience led to a pretty major crisis in his life just to get to his attention. I think getting swallowed by a fish is a pretty major crisis. And the guy on the ship, they didn't want to sacrifice Jonah. They didn't want to throw Jonah out into the sea, but it was getting too bad. Nothing else was working, and so they sacrificed Jonah out to the sea. So Jonah Willing, was willingly sacrificed to the sea for his own sin. But New City, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is the far better Jonah. Yes, Jonah sacrificed himself for the mariners, but it was out of his own sin and rebellion. But Jesus, he willingly sacrificed himself to the cross because of our sin and rebellion. Jesus on the cross was the truer and better Jonah. He sacrificed himself as totally innocent. He sacrificed himself for the entire world and for you and for me. We can easily insert Christ here as a word picture and say that if Christ was physically there on the boat in the gospel, he would have been sacrificed for Jonah. He would have gone in Jonah's place. That's the gospel. Jesus stood in our place. He stood in Jonah's place. He stood in our place at the cross for your disobedience and my disobedience and for Jonah's disobedience. That's what God did for us. We were supposed to be the ones thrown out into the sea, but Jesus stood in our place and went for us. And when we realize what Christ has done for us in the gospel, that it should have been us that went to the cross, that it should have been us like Jonah that was sacrificed to the sea for his sin, our response should be a response of just thanksgiving and full surrender because Jesus, he was not partially sacrificed. No, he surrendered his entire life for, our, for us. And listen, if you don't know Christ here today, if you've never trusted Christ as Lord, please know this, he is pursuing you. God is pursuing you. And I hope that you'll see and that you'll know that God will go and do great wonders and make great strides in the lives of his people to get the message of salvation to you. And so I just so deeply hope that you, we all just know that God cares for your soul. 
Like he wants you to respond to his call and to bring himself, bring, bring, and come back to him. Come to him. I mean, the scriptures are to tell us that all uh, that believe in Jesus as Lord, like to believe in Jesus, all it takes is to believe in Jesus that he rose, uh, for, that he, he went to the cross and did everything necessary to save you and that he rose from the dead. We believe in this and then we tell someone. Brothers and sisters, God cares for you. God cares for all of you and he is relentlessly pursuing us, all of us, in every area of our life. He pursues us in our rebellion. He pursues us in the midst of our storms and he wants our entire life. And yes, we know that God is pursuing us, but we also know he's also pursuing the people around us. So we have to ask, who is God calling us to? Like he was one person in our life, maybe a whole group of people that get, God may want to be, do a work in. Like who is God calling you to get the gospel to? And I wouldn't be surprised that if in the process God begins to do a work in you and change you and make you more like himself. What a joy. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, you're so kind. God, I, I pray that as you pursue us, wherever we are, wherever people are in this room, maybe watching online, God, I just ask and pray that we would trust and know that you are pursuing us for our good. God, I, I, I hope and pray that you would do a work in us, that you would make us more like yourself, God, that you would, that we would all just, we would give you our entire life and say, God, take it all. God, we love you and we ask for your help. We say this in Jesus' name, amen.